If you'll open your Bibles to Acts 9, we'll be in Acts 9 all morning. And while you are, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, myself. I love action movies, something I like to, I like to watch action movies. My wife and I both, it's one of those rare combinations where we're, we're the same there. So we both enjoy a good action movie. But what I don't like is an action movie that's nothing but action. In fact, I can't stand um, an action movie that has no plot or that has no story, that's just kind of trying to overawe me with, with sights and sounds. What I find when I go to these action films um, is they have the ability to mesmerize me at the time. Uh, there are times I've walked out of a film and I have, I've said to myself or to my wife, who's usually there with me, I've said, that is the best film that has ever been made. But what I notice is, like a month later, I'm not even thinking about it. And when it comes out in the blockbuster, I don't have this desire to rent it. Or when someone asks me for Christmas, you know, you'd think if it was the best movie of all time, I would want it in my DVD library or whatever that is. I don't desire to have that. It, it kind of fades. And what I realize is sometimes these action movies, with all of their, their ability to grab all your senses, you know, your sound and just larger than life and 3D and all of these things, they can, you can get caught up in it, despite the fact that it may or may not have a story at all. Case in point. My wife and I went and saw Avatar. Now, I'm not going to pick on Avatar too much because a lot of people are picking on it. And um, it certainly had the best special effects I've ever seen in my life. Um, and it had a storyline. So it's not guilty of not having a storyline. What it's guilty of is having this completely unoriginal, hackneyed, overused storyline. So that it's, it's kind of kidnapping stories from all the other movies in front of it it's doing nothing original. It's just dressing it up in bright lights. That's all it's doing. Now, I, you know, I, I, for what it's worth, I enjoyed it. And it, it is what it is. Um, but there's this idea that if special effects can be mated to a great story, it, it, that makes an epic film. Versus if the special effects are just kind of tied to a run-of-the-mill story, or to something that's unimpressive. You know, so Lord of the Rings is epic. And Avatar, I don't know if I'll ever see it again. Well, I say that because today we're going to be kind of looking at a story that is full of special effects. Acts chapter 9 is the conversion of Saul. It's the most famous conversion in the history of the church. It's certainly the most famous conversion in the Bible. It's full of special effects. It has lights and sounds and... and Magical appearances by unexpected characters. It's the kind of thing that, um, if not attached to a good story, we can run the risk of kind of losing, losing its purpose. So this morning I kind of want to look and I want to peel off the special effects and observe what's the story going on beneath, beneath the account and ask ourselves, is it something worth watching again? So let me read. Let me read Acts 9. I'm going to read the first 19 verses. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. Now in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man of, from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man, all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry the name, my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Well, the story begins with a meanwhile, because we've just finished two weeks of talking about Philip. And the story is trying to get back to the original issue, which was the church was being persecuted. In particular, the church is being persecuted by a man named Saul. So uh, Luke, when he begins to write after the martyrdom of Stephen, he says the church was scattered and was persecuted. And then Luke goes down this little tributary to tell us about Philip. And now he's bringing us back to the story, the big story, which is the persecution of the church and the persecution by Saul. And Saul's described here in a strange way. It says he was still breathing out murderous threats. In Acts 8... It says he was ravaging or destroying the church. And the verb there is the same verb used earlier in Scripture about a wild bull that ravages a vineyard. It's that same kind of idea. And there have been some in the church uh, um, who've likened Saul to a dragon, a pre-conversion Saul, because of the fact that he ravages the church and he breathes out these threats and scales fall from his eyes. And I've always thought that's a neat image. A neat image of of Saul before his conversion. But what happens here, so Saul's traveling to Damascus, and it's on this road to Damascus that this this conversion experience happens. And this experience itself is so unique, it's so atypical, it's so radical, it's something that you and I don't, or I, and I don't think you have ever seen anything quite like it. 
It's full of special effects. You might think of it that way. The story is so full of the lights and the glamour and the glitz, and it's Dolby 7.1. That's what's happening. There's a surround sound going on here. And what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of chop this story up and try to understand what's really going on, and then in the end try to put it back together again so it, it makes a little more, more sense. But I think we could first start by saying, what is atypical about this account? What, if this is really unique, what's so unique about it? What is so uh, glorious? What are the special effects? And, and these, are, these are the three that I saw. The first is the setting. It's a unique setting. Saul wasn't converted after a Bible study. Saul didn't come forward on an altar call. This isn't after a a one-on-one conversation over coffee where you say to Saul, would you like to pray to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's not what's happening here. Paul's walking to Damascus in the middle of the day. Imagine that you are commuting to work, home from work in the late afternoon, and you get converted. I mean, the setting is just very unique. There's really no kind of spiritual cue or preamble to this occasion. That's the first thing that I think is unique, very special. The second thing is the experience itself. The brilliant light, the blinding light, the audible sound, the true appearance of Jesus Christ. This wasn't a vision. So don't let your mind get tricked to say, oh, well, this kind of happened inside of Saul. It didn't. It actually happened. The people that were there around, they didn't quite hear, they couldn't hear what Jesus was saying, but they knew something had happened. The fact that Saul had scales on his eyes meant that this wasn't something that happened in his mind's eye. This isn't like he realized he was spiritually blind. He was blind. A bright light blinded him. So the experience itself is, is very unique. I think it's unique. I, I, have never, I have never seen Jesus in a blinding light. And I don't think any of you have. No, I didn't think so. Here's the third thing. The third thing is the subject. It's a unique subject. And what I mean by that is is Saul is a unique candidate for salvation. This isn't a person who's been going to Bible studies or filling out a study guide. He hasn't uh, been calling people, asking about the four spiritual laws track he received. Saul of Tarsus is a fervent, zealous, persecuting enemy of the church. All three of those things make it so atypical, so unique, so colorful of an event. And it's here that I think uh, we need to begin to ask why. So why why this atypical conversion? Why does God put this in the Bible? Why does he choose to to make this event in Saul's life? What's the significance? If you remember last week, we talked about the fact that when we arrive at an atypical narrative in Scripture or an atypical teaching or an atypical God sighting, something that just doesn't really sit with our experience, because this is not our experience. We just don't get saved like this. When we find something like that, there's good cause to begin to ask, why is God doing this? What's his reason behind doing this? Because God is not a God of confusion. This Bible wasn't written and given to us to drive us into confusion. It was written to reveal God to us. We're supposed to read this 
and make some more sense of God than when we started. That's the goal. So why? Why this crazy conversion? Well, I think there's some light that's shed on it in the 15th verse of the 9th chapter. This is what the Lord says to Ananias. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I guess the short answer is that's why. I think that's why the road to Damascus was such a fabulous sight is because the role and purpose and calling of Saul is so significant. That Saul is going to be called and asked and expected and empowered to do things that you and I have only dreamed of. And I don't just mean good things. Good things and bad things. There's a time in Saul's life where he was stoned just like Stephen and the only reason they stopped is they were convinced he was dead. They stoned him outside the city. When they were sure he was dead, they left and he got up. And he went to the next city. That's Saul. How are you going to do that? If God has not been made real in your life, I think one of the reasons, maybe the major reason, certainly one of the significant reasons that this road to Damascus experience is so visual, so, so unavoidable, is because God is going to ask Saul to do things that are going to hang on this kind of event. Let me give you an example. 2 Corinthians 11. Saul is writing, or Paul, he's now called Paul. He's writing to the church of Corinth, and the church of Corinth has recently got into a fad of false teachers. They have all these false teachers coming into Corinth that are trying to boast about their secret knowledge or boast about their wisdom beyond the ages or boast about their price tag or boast about the things they've done. And Paul, who's classically a humble man, hasn't boasted. And so he's writing to the Corinthians going, is that it? You just follow whoever boasts about the Lord? He goes, well, if you want boasting, I'll boast. I'll, he gets very cynical in the 11th chapter. He says, if, I, I wish I'd have known I had just had to boast. So he says, I'll boast. Not because Jesus wants me to boast, but because your itching ears need to hear boasting. Here's your boasting. And so he boasts. So speaking of comparing himself to these false teachers, he says this, Are they Hebrews? So am I. I'm a Hebrew. Are they Israelites? I'm an Israelite. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? He says, he says this, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I mean, that's, I'm not, that's not the message. He says that. He says, I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and exposed to death again and again. That's why, that's why Jesus Christ appears to Saul in person on the road to Damascus. Because one day he's going to be one of the few humans of all time who says, I've worked harder, I've been whipped more severely, I've been threatened with my life more often than you. He says this, five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That's more than Jesus 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, and in danger in the country, danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. Saul is living a life where he gets crushed. And you know what God says to him? Get up and go. And he gets crushed, and God says, get up and go. And it happens again and again and again. And I say, that is why Jesus Christ shows up on the road to Damascus. It's because Saul has been called to a very unique, very radical, very atypical life. And it isn't just what he's done. So, so we, can, we can move on from simply his life of ministry. Let's simply talk about his role in the church Saul, who was a zealous Pharisee, a Jew, after his conversion was given the position of apostle. So his life violates all the other criteria behind what makes an apostle. The twelve apostles, there were certain ways of understanding these twelve apostles. When you, you can read, when they were trying to figure out who's going to replace Judas Iscariot, they were trying to figure out who fits a certain mold. Saul doesn't fit any of that. Saul's apostleship is based and fixed upon this occasion on the road to Damascus. All the authority he preaches with, the 11 books of the Bible that you read, who are authored by Paul, are in Scripture because of the affirming stamp of approval by God on the road to Damascus. In 1 Corinthians 15, he writes this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And listen to this. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And then he says this. For I am the least of the apostles. And I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was with not without effect. No, I work harder than all of them. Saul's position in the church, his very position in the church, is built and founded and validated and blessed and commissioned by the road to Damascus. He says this in Galatians 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I've preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by the revelation from Jesus Christ. Where is this revelation? It's the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Now I say all this because I want you to avoid, I hope we can avoid a common error. Or at least what I think is prone to error, which is this idea that Jesus Christ, when he appears to Saul on the road to Damascus, that the whole, intent of the, the whole intent of the appearance was for the salvation and the conversion of Saul. As though, as though there, that's what Saul needed to become Christian. So we go, why didn't, why didn't Jesus appear to me on the road to Hokesson 
And in our minds, we think, well, we did, I, didn't need, I didn't need a glorious, blinding appearance of Jesus Christ on the road to Hokesson. But Saul did. I mean, I think that's sometimes where our mind settles. Is we don't really know what to do with this. It's, it's so big, it's so atypical, and it feels irrelevant to our own lives that we kind of say that for some reason God just gave a super extra amount of grace to Saul and gave him this glorious appearance because that's what he needed to get over the hump. I would caution you against thinking that way. I think sometimes when we think that way, it can lead us down some paths. Like we, be, we can begin to think, well, if that's the case, then why doesn't God give that kind of grace to my, my relative, right? My brother or my, your father or your best friend, right? This person who, who for some reason hasn't received the appropriate amount of grace to get over the hump. If God does it for Saul, why wouldn't he do it for them? Now, I am not the judge of the Lord. I certainly would not judge the Lord if he wants to give one person more grace than the other. That's the Lord's business. I'm glad we get grace at all. So if he gives you more grace than he gives me, then praise Jesus. That if you've come farther to get to the temple than I have, then praise Jesus. I hope, I hope in this church, everybody gets more grace than me because I have received sufficient grace. But I don't think... That's what's happening. So I'm not saying he can't do it. I'm saying the Lord is doing more here than simply saving Paul. That the Lord has a role and a purpose and a future and a ministry and an apostleship and a mandate and things that you and I have never dreamed of in store for Paul and it needs to start in a certain way. If Paul had just come to the Lord through a small group study. If Paul was watching late night TV and came to Jesus and mailed in a hundred bucks, the, the, the apostles would not have been able to appreciate that. Where would his mantle of authority be? It would be gone. His mantle of authority is on the fact that Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road and selected him. And I think... This is what I want us to do. If we can just tear back the special effects of this Damascus Road experience. Let's just tear it back. Let's peel it back. Let's tone it down. Let's put this fancy movie on the black and white TV in your kitchen. Okay? And like watch it in a very flat way. And And what I think you'll see is that the elements of Saul's conversion are very much the same as the elements that you're familiar with. It's very much, it's classic and it's typical. It's just embellished in light and sound. And I want to show you. We'll do it this way. There are three occasions where this testimony of Paul's, this testimony of Paul's conversion is listed in Scripture. Acts 9, which we just read. Acts 22, where Paul the Apostle tells it himself to a crowd. And then Acts 26, where Paul once again shares this story. Now, Acts 22, it's pretty much the same information. But Acts 26 says something different. Something additional. I'm going to draw your attention particularly to Acts 26, verse 14. This is what what Paul says about his own experience. Okay, so he's on the road. Bright lights appear. 
And he says in 14, We fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now we're familiar with that part. This is the part. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. The suggestion there, that's actually like in a, a proverbial statement from agricultural life at the time. So it's, it's a saying. Like we might say, uh, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? How long are you going to swim upstream? He might say that. Okay? It's that kind of saying. And kicking against the goads is this idea that if you were in, a, in like the old school world and you had an ox and a cart or an ox and a plow or you wanted to till a, till a field, you'd h- harness up your ox and then you had a stick and on the end of the stick was a spiky point called a goad. And when he wanted it to go forward, he'd go, he'd go moo and he'd go, <laughs> right? And if, if he wasn't going fast enough, you shift gears, and he'd goad on. You know, get on, get goading. It's kind of the idea there. Well, it hurts. It hurts an ox. And so sometimes the ox would re- respond by kicking. What happens when he does that is he jams that spike deeper in. You can't fight the spike. The spike's not going to yield. It's not going to retreat. It's metal. It doesn't care. And so the whole idea here of kicking against the goads is when you're being prodded and poked and there's things in your life that are being shaped. How long? How long are you going to fight the prodding of the Lord? How long? When are you going to stop kicking against the goads, Saul? Now that feels very typical. I can relate to that of a life where I felt prodded to the altar of God. Whether it's an issue of salvation or confession or anything, where you, you, you want to go one way, you want to go their way, and you could even be zealous there. You could have a clean conscience. I don't think for a second that Paul knew Jesus Christ was Lord and Savior and still decided to persecute the church. That's, I don't think that's it. He's a zealous man. Zealous people do things out of fervent zeal. I think he believed what he was doing, but I think over this course of time, things started prodding and poking and pushing against his life. And I'll show you some of them. The first one is the martyrdom of Stephen. So we read the martyrdom of Stephen. We call him a martyr because to be a martyr is to be a witness of Christ. We say, and it was as Pastor Terry preached, about the value of being an effective witness before Christ, of all of the truth that you're showing, that when we witness Christ, the truth of God, the truth of Christ and His salvation are seen by others. We fully accept that teaching, but sometimes we forget that Saul was in the hearing and sight of that act. Saul, not us, Saul watched Stephen go to his death. That when Stephen's face appeared as that of an angel, Saul thought in his mind, that guy looks like an angel. When, when Saul heard Stephen talk about all the Old Testament history on the way up to his martyrdom, Saul heard it. He heard it with his ears. He watched it. Not only that, Saul's made his living right now on seeking new witnesses and new martyrs for Christ. So Saul hasn't just seen Stephen Saul knocks on another Christian's door, beats the door down, takes the husband and wife prisoner, and watches it again and again 
and again, right? Every time he takes a, a Christian family captive and that they're forced to push their faith right up to the limit where they will not deny Christ, well, they will endure hardship, where they will rejoice in, in hardship, where they will sing songs in prison, Saul has been watching. How long? How long will you kick against that good? There's got to be something in you that would start to say, what is with these people? That makes you a goad for others. That your life being lived is either pushing someone towards Jesus or pushing them away or letting them go right down the path to destruction that they're on. That your life, especially in hardship, we wonder why do bad things happen to Christians? Bad things happen to Christians because that's when non-Christians watch the most. When you're loneliest, people are watching. I cannot tell you how much witness Bill Berger has made in this church. It's just that's how it is. We, we goad people to Jesus Christ. Your witness is an effective witness. It speaks truth into their life, and it cannot ignore it. If you bear the mark of Christ, you are a goad. Here's the second, second way that I know he's been goaded, is the fact that Saul of Tarsus knew the law and the prophets. He knew the law and the prophets. He knew Scripture. Who knew Scripture better than Saul? He says, I advanced among my peers. There is no one equal to me. Of the Pharisees, I was unequaled in my knowledge of the Scriptures. Last week, we just talked about how this eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, and he says, I can't make sense of this. Can someone explain it to me? And Philip goes, sure. I'll get up there and talk about it. Do you not think that Saul, at some time in Scripture, has run across the same messianic passages and wondered, what is the deal? Especially when the very people he's witnessing are quoting them or using them, or referring to them. But Stephen, the whole way up to his martyrdom, is quoting scripture. He's telling the narratives. He's sharing someone like Saul, who knows the word. He had to have been goaded from time to time. The Old Testament tells the birthplace, the birth date, the family line, the name, the calling, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the glorification of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all in there. It's the mystery. In fact, in Colossians, Paul writes that the mystery, which has been kept secret for generations, has now been revealed to you. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what he says. I can just imagine that this has been an itching mystery in his life as he reads the scriptures and goes, how does that connect? And how does that connect? And what's going on there? Scripture goads us to Jesus. Which means that if you're a seeker, you ought to be studying the word. And I know it. it's not easy to read the Word by yourself at breakfast. And I know that it's hard to make sense. I know it's hard to make sense of it if you're coming in. But we have Sunday school classes. We have Bible studies. We have life groups. You ought to be in the Word. If you're devout in your pursuit of God, you ought to be in the Word. And if you claim to be a Christian, you ought to know it. You've got to know it, and you've got to know it better. And we have Sunday schools and life groups, and Bible studies. 
witnesses goad us, Scripture goads us, and finally Christ goads us. I think the appearance of Christ in Damascus is that final nagging pull for, for Saul, to pull him in. And I would say that, again, in the story, it's all turned up. There's so much light and sound. But if you turn that down, it sounds much more typical than it does in the Word. The fact that you and I know that the Spirit convicts us to truth. That the very same essence that appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus is the very same essence that speaks in the back of your mind, how long are you going to kick against the goats? That when you're coming towards the faith, but because of fear you do a right turn or a left turn, that voice that says, again, really? Again, you're scared? What are you scared of? How long? That's the Spirit. That is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, speaking. So what you see, I think, is that even though this this salvation experience is atypically bright and atypically loud and atypically visual, it's absolutely typical. It's just more of what we know. Well, I'll close with this thought. I don't know how much of this experience can be attributed to the salvation of Paul and his conversion. Certainly he's converted here. I, don't wanna, I can't deny that this is part of his conversion, that Christ appeared for his conversion, and that he's saved at this moment. If there is a, even on his trend, if there is a punctiliar moment of salvation, it's here. It's at this moment. Or at this moment in the narrative. What I, what I hope is that we can begin to stop separating our conversion experience from our calling and purpose with Christ. That's what I hope we can stop doing today. That we can stop trying to remember back, when it, back in 84 when you were saved, as though it was some big event where God kind of rested his hands, said, well, I've done my work. Where that road to Damascus is done, I'll go to the next one. Why did God do that for you? That's the question. Why did he do it for you? When Saul is getting beaten and stoned and flogged and whipped and jailed and run out on a rail, he's remembering why he's doing it. It's as tied to his conversion as everything else. For us, sometimes we think of our conversion as, okay, now we're into heaven. Done. I don't think God sees it at all that way. I think God sees it as the beginning of a story. It's the special effects, but there's a real story. So don't separate the two. What did God save you for? What, did, what purpose were you saved for? What are you being called to? That's the question. Why did God save you? If it's all grace, then why? Spend your life figuring out why did he save you? Why in his good grace did he call you? That would make a good story.